Welcome to Film Fam Inspired by True Events. I'm Heather. I'm Brian. And I'm Zoe. We're the Greys and we're your Film Fam. For today's companion mini-sode to our Raiders of the Lost Ark episode, we are so excited to be talking to Dr. Stephanie Hagen. Dr. Hagen studied Roman art and archaeology at the University of Penn, and she's a professor, like our handsome Indiana Jones, and she teaches in the art and art history department at Drexel and Penn. Hi, and welcome to the podcast Dr. Hagen. Hello, thank you for having me. Can I call you Stephanie? Please, or... please do. Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> I mean, I'm fine also calling you Dr. Hagen. I love that, actually. Can I call you Dr. Hagen? Yeah, you can call me Dr. Hagen. You can call me Professor Hagen. Please don't call me Ms. Hagen or Mrs. Hagen. Students think that's like they're trying to be polite when they call me Mrs. Hagen. They don't understand that they are both like referring to this gendered history and ignoring my doctorate. So really either. Right. It's and- like, so um, married Hagen lady or unmarried Hagen lady. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, what's important right. about you. Obviously. You need to pull a music man where uh, uh, somebody, uh, somebody goes up to him and he says, uh, uh, excuse me, Mr. Hill. And he's like, oh, no, please, please, please. Professor Hill. <laughs> I love that. It's. I mean, you didn't spend all those years getting your doctorate to be called Ms., right? I mean... I agree. Well, I like calling you Dr. Hagen, right. actually, but I know you as Stephanie, as also my friend Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have two questions for you. One, have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? I have, but it's been a really long time. I think in high school... My friend Nicole found out that I hadn't seen it, and she gave me the DVD. So I know I've seen it, but it's been a while. Well, then my other question may land or not. How often do your students write love you on their eyelids to you? Or slowly. (laughs) And then blink at you. And is that a really big problem? Do they like, (laughs) love you, Dr. Hagen? (laughs) That has never happened to me, but now I have a life goal. <laughs> Be looking for it. Look now out for it. I know what to put under objective on my CV. <laughs> <laughs> we should have prepped for that. <laughs> I get, uh, we were, you know, you're listening to this uh, with audio only, but when we record, we're face to face. We see the videos. And somebody could have written that on their eyelids right now. Uh, Done a little slow man. wink. We didn't prep it. Would, it. it would probably have to to be mom is the only appropriate person to do that since I've never met you. Um, <laughs> Just, I thought about do doing that, that once in a lecture. Yes. Yeah. Someone does that. A girl sitting in one of his lectures just writes love you on her eyelids and then just blinks at him all slow like. And oh, he's gross. like very kind of alarmed. I, well, right. It's I think it's supposed to be like, oh, he's a professor, but he's a hot professor. But it actually is like, he's yes. <laughs> I mean, archaeologists do have very active sex lives on excavations. <laughs> that is true to life. Okay. I do not. This is the find... main. This is why we had you on this podcast. <laughs> we are starting off this now and nothing else. To the, to the this is so strong. content. Uh, I don't find that transfers to the classroom, though. <laughs> not, not literally yeah. in the classroom. That's good. Not usually. Not usually. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> There's um, just something about the dirt 
and the heat and the having to wash your clothes in a basin that just brings out all of your carnal urges. Well, one thing we learned last week was also that one way you can tell that something is a bone is by licking it. I I feel like you shouldn't phrase it like that. Um, that's pretty true. Yeah, you can like spit on things. A big thing is to, you know, the song, and I see your true colors shining through. Okay, if you want to see the true color of a building material, you're going to like pour a little water on it, maybe mm-hmm. spit on it to wipe ah. away the dirt and see like, oh, this is porphyry. This is serpentine. So I would say that... <laughs> I get, I get it. Your liquids you're, are sometimes involved in archaeology. You're, you're there. You're on a dig. Everyone's spitting on things. I mean, like certain hot. things are just bound to happen. It sounds really hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so exciting. Oh, Holy it's hot. so. It sounds like uh, this is your true life experience, and so you've been on some digs. I have. Yeah, I went on my first dig summer between junior and senior year of college um i went to cyprus and i excavated in the green zone of cyprus so um that is this demilitarized area between northern and southern cyprus which i had no idea about before i went but the turks have like a watch tower and they watch from the north and the greeks have a watchtower and they watch from the south And they kind of make sure that there's no military activity between them. And there's a UN watchtower. So we were excavating in that green zone. And, um, you know, a couple days in, like the UN guys would come and say hi and check out our permits. Uh, One time there was a fire. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was really, it was really, it's not funny, but it was okay. (laughs) So it was all right. Um, And the UN did not show up at that time to help us put the fire out, but the fire department showed up and the best thing about that day was getting sprayed with their fire hoses (laughs) because it was so hot all the time. Yeah. So I excavated on Cyprus one summer. That's amazing. Yeah. So... One of the things, one of the controversies in Indiana Jones that we did want to talk to you about is, is he a good archaeologist? Because in the cold opening, he goes into um, a temple without taking pictures or finding, he just like runs in, he grabs this statue, and then he runs out and the whole temple falls in on top of him, basically, and he destroys the whole place. And he's like, I have this thing, you know, and like, he didn't really do a lot of, uh, (laughs) good conservation. work to like yeah he didn't really con- conserve the place and also he's constantly running around stealing things from various places just i mean r- literally stealing because he didn't have the right i don't think the people who maybe that was their temple they're called the hovitos they he wasn't working with them when he goes to egypt he stole it but he stole it before the nazis could steal it so that's kind of good yeah i'm gonna go ahead and say that is not sound archaeological <laughs> research method <laughs> Archaeologists do say that archaeology is destruction. And I think that's important to know because when you excavate something, you are 
intervening in a way that changes everything about the context, right? You cannot ever put it back exactly the way it was. Um, so I wouldn't do it like Indiana Jones does it, but there is something about archeology span that's like one and done, man, this is your one shot at that trench or that site. Um, but that's one reason archeologists will often leave part of a site unexcavated. They kind of know that future scholars might have questions that we don't have or that we don't know how to answer given current methods. Um, so today, archeologists try not to do like a whole, they don't wanna level a site necessarily. And there's a lot more interest in um, non-invasive archeological methods, like one of them is GPR, ground penetrating radar. So you're basically, shooting sound waves down to the ground to figure out um, what structures are under there. So you could do something like that on a much broader scale and have an idea of like, well, here's the edge of this city or the edge of this fortification mound without even digging it. So there are cool ways to find out archaeological type information without um, going in with a travel or stealing temple sculptures. <laughs> Have you ever done archaeology or digs like close to home or is it often like other countries? I haven't. That stuff's not dead enough for me. <laughs> it's not old enough for me. What is old enough for you? <laughs> the only other site. So because I'm a Romanist, right. like it's got to be a good 1500 years old. I'm some sort of creeping newer, but by newer, I mean like medieval Byzantine. <laughs> Have you, f have you found remains on a dig or is it all just artifacts? No, like skeletons lying around? No skeletons for me. I, the coolest thing I found when I was digging was a hand, well, stone hand, not a, not a human hand, of a sculpture Ooh. holding oh. a fiali, oh. which is an offering dish. And this was part of a sanctuary wow. site. And that was, that was badass. Oh, I'm not going to so lie. Cool. That's incredible. That is so on awesome. the last day of our dig, there was something like poking out of the trench wall. It's called the bulk. So like what divided my trench from the next trench. And I wanted to get in there so bad and see this like stone piece. And did it belong to the same sculpture as the hand holding the fiali? But my trench supervisor wouldn't let me. He was all like, Oh, organized collection of data. Oh, archaeological context. It's <laughs> a real bummer. If you were Indiana Jones, you would have just blown Wouldn't have it up. with any of that. Yeah. yeah. Or if I were like Heinrich well. Schliemann trying to discover Troy, I would just be like, dig, dig, dig. I don't care about this Ottoman stuff. Dig, dig, dig. Where is the Trojan War? I watched a documentary about yeah. that. I remember watching a documentary about that and them saying that they just like kept going and just destroyed a bunch of earlier stuff because they were so sure they were going to find like Ilium. Yeah, they really did. <laughs> that, oh, no. It's it's all true. That's... They just totally disregarded levels that they weren't interested in um, and also <laughs> material that they didn't regard as having value. So stuff that we would collect today, like, I don't know, potsherds or, okay, let's say you were excavating and you found you're in an Egyptian tomb 
and you find like a canopic jar. So it's a jar that holds organs. If you were going to give that to me. Oh, hold on. We know. <laughs> You're like, duh. <laughs> I, when Sorry. I was a child, when I was a child, I used to mummify my stuffed animals and take out their quote unquote organs and put them in canopic jars. <laughs> Yeah, because we homeschooled her, and so, so I caught a weirdo. Yeah, so we when I was teaching her about you know like Egypt Egyptology or something, I had these matrioska dolls, and she used those as her canoptic jar. Yeah, there was a whole time where Zoe was yeah. really into that. I mean, Continue, the mummification sorry. period is total normal, totally normal phase of development. <laughs> um, so if you had your like canopic jar or like a, I don't know, maybe a cooking pot is a better example. If you wanted to sell that to a museum or to a private dealer, you would want to like wash it and clean it out and be like, here's my beautiful pot or here's my beautiful jar for you. But when you do that, you're getting rid of anything like trace pigments of you know any kind of trace elements of paint that could be used to learn about that you're getting rid of like floral and faunal remains that could tell you i don't know what kind of diet these people had or what kind of things they cooked or burned in that vessel Um, you're getting rid even of like the dirt that attaches to it which can be wildly important if you're somebody who does like archaeobotany and soil analysis and can actually get information from that little teeny data and so you know not only digging through layers that you're not interested in but also looking for the sexy stuff which indiana jones is definitely doing and disregarding the kind of daily life objects i mean archaeology already the archaeological record already privileges the rich it already privileges Mm -hmm. the elite that is what we have records about so um looking for the sexy stuff keeping keeping the beautiful objects you know makes that trend worse well another thing that we talked about in our episode that brian talked about was um in Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, they say that there are already treaties, but there weren't really treaties back then for the export. Yeah, exporting or importing or making sure you're doing that legally. Um, can you can you talk about that? Yeah. So in the 30s, there would have been a system called partage. Um, partage means sharing. It comes from the French partager, right? So part you're going to take part of your fines, and you're going to divvy them up and split up your fines between um, all the different parties who are excavating and the home country. So let's say you are excavating in Turkey with a team of Brits and Americans, then you're going to make three piles and one pile is going to go to Turkey one pile is going to go to the American museum or university that's involved. And one party, one pile is going to go to the Brits. And this was totally, totally normal. It is not practiced anymore. It kind of loses favor earliest in Europe um, as 
countries where we have lots of excavated material like Greece and Italy, as those countries start to form modern nation states, so really as like nationalism takes hold in Europe, they start to say, wait a second, you're not taking our cultural patrimony, you're not taking our goods. And that means that American, North American and European archaeologists and scholars are pushed into other areas if they want to dig and if they want to collect for their home institutions. And so that's why after like the mid 19th century, there's more excavation happening in Turkey, in um, like the Eastern Mediterranean and Near East, what, you know, today Iraq, Iran, places that don't have the same national infrastructure, places that are occupied by European colonial powers, and so they don't have their own say in what happens to their cultural patrimony, um, and places that don't, you know, that haven't developed these these export rules. And the, you know, Brian was talking about export rules in. Peru at the, at the time of the Indiana Jones movie, like those are going to be the dominating, that's, that's where the mandate is going to come from. Like there's no, there's no international law that says this is what we do with objects or this is how we take care of cultural heritage. There's no mechanism for enforcing that. And so it really is something that happens on a country by country basis. Um, and these piles, these like partage piles were funny because the people who constructed them wanted to make them look equal, (laughs) but they also wanted certain stuff for themselves, right? So let's say they had, again, canopic jars. Do they like, if there's something that comes in a set, do you put all four in one pile and risk not getting that pile? Do you split them up across the three piles. So there are strategies um, that have to do with collections that mean objects end up in collections divorced from right. their original yeah, context, was, divorced from the stuff that they were originally with. I was, was going to ask, like, are these piles done by count, by by volume, by, by uh, uh, value. assigned value yeah. at the time of the dig? How did they determine that these piles are equal? Yeah, I I don't think they had a very official method. I think it's a little bit like saying to your little brother, like, hey, do you want to share a cookie with me? <laughs> and then like kind of trying to break in half, but maybe keeping the bigger half for yourself. It makes me- um, And there are actually still disputes about it today. It makes me think of Zoe and her friends. She and her friends used to put all their Halloween candy oh, together. Yes. And then pull, they all like did a whole thing where they'd be like, okay, now I get to choose, now I get to choose, which I was like, elaborate trading systems based on our own internal rankings of which candies were the best. So it was like, you know, like, like three, uh, like Snickers could go for a Reese's if someone's really in the mood. Um, But then to other people, (laughs) it's three Reese's for one, you know, it's all, it's all known how to trade and who to trade yeah. with. <laughs> it makes me think of uh, nice. the English divide the uh, uh, the fines and then the French decide which pile uh, they they want. That way, 
the English are incentivized to make it even or else the French would take the bigger pile. Yes, I think that is exactly right. Yeah. And I have I have a story that sort of involves intrigue around that when you're ready to talk about yes. Nefertiti. I sent Heather some oh. some teasers of a Nefertiti bust. Yeah. I'm a thousand percent ready right now. I love the pictures you sent me. Yeah. I'm a little bit obsessed <laughs> with this object. I hope your listeners will look at it. So it is a bust of Nefertiti that's made in the 14th century BCE, so the 1300s. Um, this Egyptian queen, she's actually the wife of Akhenaten. She's the stepmother of King Tut. And we have this bust of hers. It's like 16 inches high. So it's like life size or a little over life size. She has a big crown on her head. So apparently what happens is in uh, like 1912, 1913, there's a German team of scholars excavating in Egypt, which at the time is occupied by Britain. So we already have like our complicated thing of like, who's in charge? Where are we? Who's excavating? And none of those overlap. So there's mm-hmm. this guy, Borchardt, and he um, works in Germany, but he also works for the museum in Cairo. And he's excavating and he finds this bust of Nefertiti um, in the studio. And so as part of um, creating his piles, his partage heaps, he supposedly puts Nefertiti in one of the heaps And uh, the guy who comes to make a decision about who's taking what pile um, is a representative from the Egyptian Department of Antiquities. So they're representing the the home country. But he's a French guy, this guy Lefebvre. Like that's who Egypt sends as their representative. Mm -hmm. So now we've got like another nation state, (laughs) another interest, another stakeholder. Yeah. And Nefertiti leaves... Egypt and goes to Germany. Um, then about a decade later, when it's first exhibited in Germany, in Berlin, Egypt goes wild seeing the sculpture and says basically like, hey, we didn't know that was in the pile. We would never have given up that object. And um, chart, the guy who makes the piles is like, ah, like, I I did the fair thing, but we actually have his journals and he talks about how amazing this bust is and how it's an unparalleled object. So there's this, there's kind of a can't wait to hide it in my... Exactly. (laughs) Like, I'm going to put it underneath this other cookie so that no one sees I'm really hiding a Reese's underneath. Like, I mean, it really is. I'm, I'm looking at it on Wikipedia, and it's exquisite. It really is a nice, a nice bust. <laughs> it's a nice bust. Um, but what do you what do you see that makes you say that? Oh, the the, the delicacy of the, the the sinews in the neck around the throat. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, now um, I got to look it up too. Uh, the, the the detail of I mean, I don't know if it's shadows or not, but there's like. Uh, a little line below her right eye, the uh, around the lips. Everything just looks really 
like the like the artist paid a lot of attention to it and mm-hmm. and just it's preserved it has its original color mm-hmm. the patina the everything looks like it's I mean, not new but like it could be one or two hundred years old yeah that's beautiful i'm looking at it now it's it's beautiful and it is also of a figure that is so culturally significant to egypt yeah that's true i don't want to rain on y'all's parade <laughs> it, it is a is cool object but i would argue that we think this is a cool object because of the value that European museums have placed on it and not because of anything um, inherent about the object. We're talking about a context where so much survives because of the eschatological beliefs of Egyptians. Like because they believe you've got to take it with you in the afterlife, we just have a lot of good stuff. And because of friendly environmental factors, like it not being dry, it's not actually that uncommon for pigment to survive on something like this. Um, So it's not, I wouldn't say it's the only chance to know what Nefertiti looks like. We have other like relief sculptures of her. I think that, um, yes, it's it's a skilled work of artistry. But I actually think that we appreciate it so much because this bust has become an icon of beauty. And um, Hitler actually held it up as a standard of Aryan beauty, which is a pretty ironic thing, given that we are talking about an Egyptian queen. (laughs) Um, But in Hitler's period and now... Um, the sort of Africanness of Egypt or its un-Africanness um, mm. is, is contested by scholars um, because we want, this is complicated to say, but basically as a Western culture, we really revere Egypt and all of its accomplishments. And as a Western culture, we uphold white supremacy. So mm-hmm. how do we do that? and continue to revere Egyptians, we say, oh, the the Egyptians who did the really cool stuff weren't actually Egyptians. They were Greeks and they came in after Alexander the Great. So there are all these like mental gymnastics that have to happen to get to the point where this beautiful bust is an idol of Aryan beauty. So what happened with the Nefertiti? Well, yeah, did it end up going back to it's Egypt? It's still or? in Berlin at the Neues Museum. Um, Egypt, you know, started asking for it back immediately. They they offered different compromises, like here we'll trade you a bunch of stuff for that bust. They said we're never going to let you excavate here again. That didn't really work. Um, something happened in the thirties where Germany almost gave it back. And then Hitler said, what the German people have, they keep. And it was not returned. Um, more recently, Zahi Hawass, who's a big name in um, like the antiquities ministry in Egypt, has continued to push for, you know, it survives World War One. it survives World War Two in a German bunker. Um, and in spite of kind of more recent 
pushes to return it. I, I, I don't really see that happening. There, there's the argument that that um, was a completely legal and above board expert. Um, there's the counter argument that maybe it was a little sneaky, um, but I just don't know that, I don't know that Egypt has any particular card that it can play to get Germany to return it. And now, ironically, Germany views that bust as so much a part of their own cultural patrimony. Like it didn't come from their country, wow. but they very much regard it as part of their identity. Um, it's even on like this German, there is a stamp, a postage stamp with the bust on it, um, which is kind wow. of an, yeah, an interesting idea that like she's their queen. Um, they call it in 1930, their new monarch. Um, so they really like wow. accept her or, or like they accept their revised version of her. Um, and there right. has been a more recent movement in Germany. It's called Culture Cooperation or Kultur Cooperation. Um, and they're interested in bringing attention to um, the cultural and political interests of Africa and Asia and Latin America, where colonial powers have historically kind of played out these claims. Um, but again, I, you know, I don't know what incentive the owning countries really have to, to give it back. Do you have any other anecdotes that you want to share? Oh, do you know, since you're doing a movie podcast, I did hear that that Nefertiti bust was the inspiration for the hair of Frankenstein's wife. So, huh. oh yeah, that makes right? sense. That, that is so sense. cool. I can see it now, but Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah so we we might have to fact check that, but that is that's <laughs> the rumor that's going around. Um, Callback. And I sent you um, a picture of Rihanna in a similar kind of getup and Beyonce. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that like modern queens re reclaiming. <laughs> queenship that's been taken kind of de-Africanized yeah. in a lot of ways, which I think um, is an interesting thing. That's really cool. Thank you, Dr. Hagen, so much for being on the podcast. That was amazing. Um, My pleasure. Thanks, you guys. Do you have anything to plug? I, I'm teaching a class at Penn in the fall. It's through their liberal and professional studies program, which is kind of like Penn's um, continuing ed. So it is not only open to Penn undergrads. It's going to be about Hellenistic and Roman art. So it should be a good time. Penn is really looking forward to being back on campus and in person in the fall. And I hope to be able to use some of Penn's collections. So if anyone wants to come and nerd out with me, that's where to find me this fall. Wonderful. Right. That's so that exciting. Great. Uh, Zoe, do you have anything to plug? I do. On May 16th, a Sunday, 
I am hosting an uh, online, a free Zoom concert of my music. I will be performing songs. My father will also be performing a couple songs. Um, and totally free, just an hour online. Um, we'll post the link to the Eventbrite. You can just reserve some tickets. Tell them your, if you want to, tell them your Instagram so they can also find it there. Find me on Instagram at proto.zoe. Brian, do you have anything else to plug? No, I'm not doing anything else. Uh, no, I'm not plugging anything. This is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> like Film Fam, inspired by two events, subscribe to hear more stories that inspired our favorite films. For photos and links from the show and other shenanigans, follow us on Instagram at Film Fam Podcast, on Twitter at Film Fam underscore podcast, and on Facebook at Film Fam inspired by true events. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or films whose inspiration you'd like us to explore, you can email us at filmfampodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.